We are continuing our study in the book of Genesis, and we are in chapter 18. And for this week and next week, we'll be in these chapters uh, for, for the next few weeks. We're looking at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so uh, I don't know much about you, but for me, I hadn't spent much time in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I was blown away by what is in there. And um, I hope that for this morning, as, as I read the account here for us in just a minute, that whatever uh, you may think about that story or whatever it is that you have learned about that story, maybe for many of you, you haven't revisited it in a while, and, and, and for good reason. <laughs> it's a tough story. Uh, I, I, my hope and my aim is that our ears and our eyes would be open to hearing uh, perhaps the story in, in a way that we haven't. Um, and another small note, if you are into taking notes, that the title of this sermon needs to say, what does mercy do to us? Not grace. I was thinking ahead to next week. So there, there you go. You've already got a, a vision of what's happening next week. Um, but uh, for today, it's what does mercy do to us? So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word uh, found in the book of Genesis chapter 18. I'll begin in verses 16 and I'll read down to, as you see the inner bulletin, verse 21. We're going to skip Verses 22 and the rest of 18, that is what is happening next week. Uh, We need to take that on its own. Um, And then we will read chapters 19, verses 1, all the way to 29, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's give our attention to the reading of his word. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said... Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. And spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men? Who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn. And he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck him with blindness, the men who were at the entrance of the house. 
both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone? Is there anybody else here in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people. And it has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and he said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters up. Go, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But, he seemed to his, but it seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out. And they set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, excuse me, one one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest a disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to me to flee to. And it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not just a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will never overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. Verse 23, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities. And all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities. And what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. This is ridiculous. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like a smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst to overthrow it when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we we pray that you would help us to see the story and to see your wonderful mercy in the midst of it. At this time, as the story is in many ways catching up to me, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and use the words of my mouth to proclaim your goodness to us. Would you do that for your glory? We ask this in your son's name. Amen. So I want to start with a question this morning. What does mercy do to you? And that's a different question than what does mercy do for you? It's the question, what does it do to you, to, you know, internally almost? How does it change you? And as you think about that, let me offer this definition of what mercy is. Because mercy and grace, which we'll be talking about next week, tend to kind of go hand in hand in Scripture. But they're also very confusing. Um, Mercy 
is not getting something that you deserve. Where grace is getting something that you did not deserve. Okay? Mercy is, is not getting something that you deserve. Um, but grace is getting something that you did not deserve. So what does mercy do to you? Let me illustrate this for us as we continue to think about what mercy is, especially for this story that I just read. Um, uh, I I remember distinctly what it was like getting pulled over for the first time and getting a speeding ticket when I was 17, and perhaps maybe you do too. And I remember, um, you know, I was going 75 and a 55, clearly breaking the law. And I remember everything about dealing with the police officer who came to my door or my, my car, and then who later uh, I would see again in front of the judge at the courthouse, which is a whole other experience if this is the first time you've ever been in the courthouse. <clears throat> but I remember standing there before the judge, and my dad told me to wear a tie, and I don't really know what to do. Some of these people have attorneys. And then there's the police officer who knows everything that I've done. Um, <clears throat> I mean, according to his technology with the radar. <clears throat> But I was told that it would be better for me to go ahead and, and, and offer a plea of guilty. And so I did it. And the judge, when the judge asked, I said, when he asked if I had been speeding, I said, yes, I had. And offered no excuse. I just said that was the truth. And then he looked at me and he just said, well, seeing that this is your first record, you know, first thing, I'm going to let this slide. I'm going to give you a warning, right? In other words, he, he withheld something. In other words, he withheld a judgment, a fine in this case, that I absolutely deserved, That is mercy. That is mercy. Just to, again, contrast, grace would be then at that point if he pulled out of his pocket $200 and said, here you go. Me getting something that I don't deserve. Okay? Mercy is withholding something that I do deserve. What does mercy do for you? And I could ask myself, and I have asked myself, not, of course, after that meeting, but what 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 did the mercy of that judge do to me that day? And one of the things that it did for me is that it forced me to ask the question, why me? Why me? Why are you withholding something that I've already pleaded guilty to, something that I absolutely deserve? Why are you withholding that from me? Now, as I said, this didn't come as I left the courthouse at the age of 17. But this is what mercy does for us. And when we are shown mercy, something has been withheld from us that we deserve. What that does to you, and more to our series, how that changes how we live as Christians, is really what Sodom and Gomorrah is about for Abraham and Lot. And I want us to see that this morning as we look at this story of mercy That won't just be a story that happens in chapter 18 and 19 and then is forgotten. This story is remembered all the way through the scriptures and into the New Testament. It is one of God's banners for his mercy for Israel for the rest of scripture. And I want to look at that in three ways as you see there. I want us to see that the judgment is real. Judgment itself is real. I want us to see how we escape that judgment. And then I want us to see why we escape that judgment. So judgment is real. <clears throat> How we escape it and why. Let's take those in that order. So judgment is real. And the reason I want to start here is, is we really, before we get into the story, we, we have to figure out how it is that we should respond to judgment in the first place. See, up to this point, we, you and I, the audience, the readers of the story, we know way more than Abraham. 
That is, we have already been warned about the coming judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. We, we read this back in chapter 13, which I'm sure you all remember. Uh, but it was, you know, in parentheses there of like, this is before the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah had come. We know it's coming, but Abraham doesn't. And he is about to experience here a side of God for the first time that we, the audience, are more prepared for. As a matter of fact, there is, there's, there's a ton of parallel here between this story and the story of Noah. I mean, to the detail. Um, we are familiar with God's judgment. We are familiar with his mercy to some degree at this point. Uh, even as we reflect on Noah, where he annihilates, wipes out all of mankind except for eight people. We're not sure what Abraham knows of Noah, but we are certain that he is not sure or not aware of what is about to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah at this point. And so this isn't new to us, but it is to Abraham as we enter chapter 18. It's important to note that we, the audience, know more than he does at this point. And just for the sake of review, it's also good for us to know what does Abraham know. And what does he not know? What Abraham knows at this point, again, just a quick review, is that God has made promises to him and big promises. He's made promises to make him, uh, to give him a land. He's made promises to give him descendants that he would be built into a great nation. He's made promises to Abraham that he will actually be a blessing to the nations. That's what Abraham knows. What Abraham does not know is how or when those promises will come about. So far, there are no children. There is no land even that he has possessed. And we see that as we are are given these notes all the time that there are people in the land possessing it already or currently. They haven't been driven out. We know that a covenant has been made between him and God where God bound the promises of that covenant to himself. That was back in chapter 15. And then last chapter in 17, we know that God gave Abraham a sign. A marking of the covenant that he is supposed to put on all the males born unto him. And that is it. That's all that he knows. And so when God tells Abraham that he is going to destroy Sodom in chapter 18, and then he does it in chapter 19, Abraham is seeing all of this for the first time. And by that I mean he is seeing that the God that he is following, that the God that he has come after up to this point, as a God who cares deeply about the promises that he has made. He cares deeply about the way that Abraham lives. And he cares deeply about the way that Abraham will live. He cares deeply about the way Abraham will treat his neighbors. He cares deeply about the way that he will treat his kids. He cares deeply about many things. In other words, the God Abraham is following has a way. A norm, if you will, that he wants his people to live that will ultimately reflect to the world the character and the nature of this God. At the same time, Abraham is finding out that that for those that don't keep God's way, judgment is imminent. It is a real thing. And for now, he is escaping that judgment. Of course, he's already escaped it. We all have escaped it back with Noah. But he is escaping that judgment. And this is only by God's mercy that he is being spared. And Abraham's question at this point, which has to begin to be our question too, is what keeps me from this? You just heard the story. It's awful. Maybe to some of us. What keeps me from this? Why me? This is what God is trying to teach Abraham. 
Is Abraham really better? Might be another way to put that. And see, we can respond to God's judgment in one of two ways that that, that we really tend to do. And one, one of those ways is that we look at God's judgment and we say, I cannot believe in a God who judges like this. I can't believe in a God who, who isn't a God of love, because that's, that's all I can think of about, you know, that's, that's really what I want God to be. So any God that would, that would, that would bring judgment upon somebody, um, you know, who would do something like this, I just, I can't believe in that kind of God. So we scoff at it. That's one way to respond to judgment. The other way to respond to judgment, though, is, th- is to look at judgment in Scripture and to always think about it as something that other people deserve. That's another way that we think about judgment. And so it's either one or two options for us. We either camp out over here on this side and we say, well, judgment is just something that, well, who, what, what kind of God, loving God would do that? And so we can't get our minds around that. Although if we think about it for a second, we don't live like that. And we've talked about this in the past. Right? Even if you just take the things that are going on in this story, right, things that are terrible, the worst of oppression, if those things happen to you, you want justice. Which means you want a judgment. So we can't stay on that side. At the same time, we can't stay on the side of, well, judgment is something that other people deserve. Because that's not the story here. And that is certainly not the case for the way judgment is painted throughout Scripture. When judgment is brought about in Scripture, it is rarely ever moralized in that sense. It is never held up as a way, see, this is what they deserve. Right? And if you think about judgment, even if we go to Jesus in Luke 13, when, when the people are asking him about the Galileans, did they not sin more than the other Galileans whose, whom the tower fell? That was their question. And what was Jesus' response? Repent. Repent. In other words, to the living, judgment is always a picture of us or to us to get us to repent. To realize you probably deserve this in some shape or form i.e. Noah, but you didn't get it. So repent. So judgment is never this thing that is something that just other people deserve. So there has to be a third way, which is always what Christianity is. And what is that third way? That we should look at judgment, not in one of these two ways, but it should cause us at the very least to stop and ask, why me? Why are you sparing me? And the answer to that question is always God's mercy. And that has to humble us because mercy is always saying something has been withheld from you that you actually deserve. And that might be new for some of us in here, even for some of us that have been in the church for a long time. But mercy is saying that something has been withheld from you that you actually deserve. And friends, I don't know where you stand with Christianity or Jesus or whatever it is, but judgment is real. And we know it is deep in our hearts. And there's a part of us that wants it to be so true as long as it's not for us. But judgment is real and we don't need to scoff at it. We don't need to scoff at it this morning as enlightened moderns. And we don't need to think about judgment as something that only others deserve. We need to look at this text in the story. And we need to see the acts of God's judgment in Scripture. And his coming judgment when he returns. And say, why me? Why are you sparing me? 
What keeps me from this judgment? Because when we do that, we are beginning to allow the mercy of God, his character to root in our hearts. When mercy begins to root in our hearts because we've been shown mercy, we begin to hear the cries of the oppressed around us and and to imitate the love of God for them in that place. Which is the mission of God in the first place. And so it gets us to our next point. But this is the first point. Judgment is real. And it should cause us to stop and ask why. Why me? Why spare me? But thankfully, God tells us how to escape that judgment. That gets to our second point, how we escape the judgment. And the answer is clear. I was going to say simple, but it's clear. How we escape the judgment is by keeping God's way. Okay? It's by keeping God's way. It's right there in the text. Look at verses 16 to 21 again. Abraham learns a lot as the Lord and these two messengers have come to visit him. All right. Already at the beginning of chapter 18, they have given him a date as the one this child is going to come about. That they're going to be back within a year's time when the child will be born. So he's told that, which is, I'm sure, helpful to him. Now Abraham is being brought into this special relationship with God where he will intercede for Sodom. Which means he will pray for these godless people. More on that next week. In this scene, though, God says this in verse 18, or excuse me, verse 17 and 18. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm what I about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations on earth shall be blessed in him. That is a summary of chapter 12. For I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to what? Keep the way of the Lord. See, Abraham hears the promises again, and then he hears something different. He actually hears how he will escape the judgment by keeping this way. For this is how God will fulfill his promises to him. In other words, he will escape judgment by being obedient to the ways of the Lord. And how we know this is, the, this is, this is that way of the Lord, it is set in contrast to what? Sodom and Gomorrah. The not-so-way of the Lord, to put it mildly. But first, you might be asking, what does it mean to keep the way of the Lord? And that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked that this morning. How do we do this? What does this mean? If that's how we are to escape the judgment. And Christopher Wright has two explanations for this. The first is the imitation that God actually desires for you and I to imitate him. That is keeping his way. Right? You can imagine if you're um, hiking, and I'll use an illustration for this, and you're following a guide, and you're to imitate the footsteps of where that guide is going so as not to end up in disaster. I have a friend who tells a story about hiking uh, up, up in really, really high mountains. And he was with a guide, and they went off trail. And he said, listen, we're going to go off trail because I'm going to take you to some places that nobody else knows about unless they're from here that gives you, that'll give you some amazing views of the valley. But here's the deal. We're going on these, they call them goat trails because they're about as wide. Only a goat can stand on them. Um, and then there's usually a, a pretty long face. But we're going on these trails. You have to step where I step. You will see a rock and it'll look like it's sturdy, but it's not. It'll shoot right from under you. If we do this, you've got to step where I step. At this point, I'm just out. I'm happy to stay on the trail where the rope is and like watch. But my friend doesn't do that. He wants to live dangerously. So he goes and he says, it only took me three steps before I broke this. <laughs> he said, I was doing good. 
And then I was like, I got this. And he goes and he puts his foot on what looked like this sturdy rock. And before his entire weight is on it, it shoots out from under him. And he has dropped 20 to 30 feet, he says, onto this face before there's another 200 foot drop. I mean, it was like that. After that, him and the guide went back behind the rope where they're supposed to be, I'm sure. I'm sure that was the end of that. But but the first idea of keeping the weight is imitation. God is... And once it's saying to Abraham, I want you to do what I do. I want you, if I put my foot here, I want you to put your foot there. And for very good reason. But there's another sense of, of understanding what the way is as well. And that is following instructions to stay a certain course or uphold a certain standard or norm. You could also illustrate this through hiking as well. If you were going to go hike the Appalachian Trail all the way from Georgia to Maine, I believe... Um, and you wanted to do that within a summer's time, you'd have to stick to a, 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 you know, a, a, a schedule. And you'd have to stick to a, a path. And to veer off that path at all would, would, would for sure mean that you wouldn't meet your deadlines. And so in this sense, you're given a map. And you're given directions on how to stay on that path. Here's the path. Don't veer off of it. There's a little more freedom in this illustration because you just have to stay on the path. We're not imitating at this point. But to veer off of it would be to go, you know, to not keep the way, so to speak, and so to not keep your destination. And the reality is, is that for understanding what it means to keep the way of the Lord is to do both of these things. It's both imitation and it's staying on the path. That's what that means. All right, fair enough, right? We think God wants Abraham and he wants us perhaps to keep the way of the Lord. That sounds good. But what does that actually mean? Right? What, what, are, the, what, what are the motions of this? What are the things that I'm supposed to do? What does staying on the path look like? What is the way of God? You might be asking. What are the norms of God? And he gives those for us. Did you you notice that? By doing what? Righteousness and justice. Keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. These two verbs, justice and righteousness, will be and this is the first time they come up here, will be the banner for Israel and their mission as God's people for the rest of the Old Testament. Everyone from patriarchs to prophets to kings to servants will be held by this standard of keeping this way, which is doing righteousness and justice. And so for our time, it is important for us to slow down for a second. And let's really define these terms Because that will be important for us, certainly going forward, but also understanding what is actually happening here in Sodom and Gomorrah. The first one of righteousness simply means straight. Something that is fixed and fully what it should be. In other words, it is the norm. It is the norm. When Ada and I walk into our girls' rooms and there are clothes and toys and food everywhere, that is not the norm. That's the norm, but it's not the norm. You know what I mean? And so to clean up in in our house and in their room is to put things in their right places as what? As they should be. As they should be. That is righteousness. God has a way... He has a way that is his norm. That is, the way, that is the way that things should be. And as Christians, we should learn to love that way because why? It's the best way. It's the best way. 
We often think of this way as rules to follow, but they're not. They are norms of living for being human as God, our creator, has intended and has created us. And to live this way is often what? Its own reward. The reward of a clean room is obvious, right? You can find things in there. That seems good to us. It doesn't seem to be connecting with our kids. But like when we're running around trying to find a certain outfit and there are a hundred pieces of clothes on the floor, you're like, well, why can't you find it? I don't know why you can't find it. But when your room is clean, you can find these things. But more than that, a clean room, what? Other people can be invited in to enjoy the rest that it offers and the beauty that it, that it gives you. All right, it's endless, right? <clears throat> we might not understand that or like it while we are cleaning it up, by the way. But in the end, we get it. And to live this way is its own reward. Well, God hasn't done this yet, but he will spell out a summary of the norm by giving Israel what? Ten commandments. Take any one of those commandments. Take any one of them. Right? And tell me that if we all live that way, if we all just obeyed these rules, this norm, that this, this world wouldn't be an awesome place to live in. I can't, you can't even imagine it because we're, we just don't do it. But just, you would agree that that is its own reward to follow those things and to do those perfectly. Christians and non would create an amazing place to live. Right? That's God's intention for his law, for his norm. That, 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 that its reward is doing them. It blesses everybody. That's what righteousness is. It's keeping this way. It's the norm. It's the way things should be. But as you and as I know, we live in a world where norms, or excuse me, where rooms don't stay clean and norms are not always kept. We live in a, in a place where straight things become crooked. And so part of keeping the way of, of, of the Lord, uh, according to, to, to Genesis 18 and what he's saying to Abraham, is that not only do I want you to keep things the way they should be, I want you to actually fix things that are broken and put them back to where they should be. And that's justice. That's justice. It is hearing the torment of the oppressed, which is what's happening in this text, as God is doing here and making it right. That's what he's telling Abraham to do. Keep this way, but when it's broken, fix it. Clean your room. But actually, hearing the, the torment of the oppressed, the outcry of those experiencing injustice, I don't know if you noticed this, is actually how this entire story begins. And I need to be clear here. This story does not begin because of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. The story begins because of the outcry of its oppression. That is what the Lord hears, and that is what he comes down to see. It's this outcry that he is concerned with, and that should cause us some serious reflection. We read about it in verses 20 to 21. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry. Again in 1913, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. This is the same word we read in chapter 4, if you've been reading Genesis from the beginning, when Cain kills Abel and God comes after Cain and says, Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is what? Crying. 
to me from the ground. It is the torment of the oppressed. And that is what God is responding to. See, God isn't this blood-hungry God who just wants to destroy things. He cares about justice. And that's why there's going to be a judgment. It's here that God is actually being an amazing teacher for Abraham, if you note that. Because he is modeling what it looks like to do righteousness and justice by hearing the cries of the oppressed coming out of Sodom and putting things to rights. And this, as we find out too, is how Abraham will be a blessing to the nations or how God will fulfill his promises to him. But God is always doing righteousness and justice. Because that is who he is. And now he wants Abraham and his descendants after him to do it too. But as you probably have sensed with me already, this creates a dilemma, doesn't it? And why does it create a dilemma both for Abraham and both for me and for you? It's because an expectation has been set. Friends, we haven't gotten to the law yet. Here it is, though. An expectation has been set. How are we going to keep the way of the Lord? How are we going to keep, not just from going the way of Sodom, which is to overturn all of God's norms and to live how you desire, but how are you going to hear the cry of the, of the oppressed and to do something about it? That's part of the expectation too. See, maybe like, like me, I got all excited when God told me what to do. Keep the way, keep my way. Do righteousness and justice. That sounds good. But you know that knowing the way is completely different than keeping the way. Like my friend, it took him three steps before he found himself almost at the bottom of a 300-foot cliff mountain. Knowing the way is different than keeping the way. The expectations are only going up from here, by the way. Abraham and Israel will find out that they're not just responsible for the ways that they break God's norms. They're responsible for the ways that their family and other people in their uh, part of Israel breaks the norms. And then it's going to get worse. They're actually responsible for the sins of their fathers. And that's a conversation none of us want to have right now. But that doesn't make it less true. That doesn't change God's expectation and his norm for us. Because that is what justice is. And that is what righteousness is. Keeping the way things should be and fixing them when they are broken. And see, as it turns out, keeping the way of the Lord, how we escape judgment, is going to end up costing us our lives one way or another. And this way of the Lord is a dilemma Abraham must enter into in the days to come if he is to understand what, it, what is really happening to Sodom and why, but more importantly, if he is to understand the mercy of God to him and why he is sparing him. It's one thing to know God's way. It's another thing to keep it. Relative to Sodom, everybody in this room is probably better. But there's going to be another bar, isn't there, coming? And his name is Jesus. And we're going to look at that cross here in a second. And we're going to say, that is the expectation I did not meet. And we're going to look at the cross and we're going to start to see, like Sodom, I was spared this. I was spared this. 
because of God's mercy. And this gets us to the last point for time's sake. Thankfully, how we escape judgment is not the why we escape judgment. Okay? Why we escape judgment, this is the last point, is because of God's mercy to us alone. And God's mercy to us means, as we have been saying, that he withholds something from us that we too deserve, but that he also finds a way to satisfy that justice when we can't. It is somewhat comical, and maybe you picked it up as I was fumbling through the reading, (laughs) frustrating even, as the Lord visits Abraham and the two angel men, that's what I'm calling them because that's what they are, They go with him down the Sodom and they they inspect and they see the cries of the oppressed to be true. And how do they know that it's true? Because the people of Sodom, right, they are wanting to do to the angel men everything that they are being judged for. And you notice in the very beginning, the angel men want to like what? They want to sleep in the town square. Like they want to see if what's happening is really true. They are opening themselves up to that. Lot knows it's true. He takes them to his house, hopefully hiding them in one sense, and it doesn't stop the depravity. And we've got to get kind of, you know, we've got to get dirty here a little bit because this is something that we can't just move away from when we look at what it is that God is, is, is defining here as depravity. This is not a text about homosexuality, by the way. This is homosexual rape. It is intentional, as uncomfortable as we all are now in this room, it is intentional that God is saying this and using this. Why? Because it is the combination of everything that is unrighteous with the injustice of oppression in one. It is the opposite of God's norm in homosexual acts, as well as the injustice that God has come down to see and his requirement for justice uh, to, re- to remove all oppression, which finds itself sadly in rape. He is taking those two things, not to point out a, necessarily a specific sin that they are being judged for, although they are doing these things. He's pointing this out to say that both my norms and my justice are not being met in the depravity of man. This is how bad it is. Abraham, do you see that? Do you see the norm that is not being met? Go fix it. And so these men of Sodom, young and old, everybody, they're after these angel men and they are you know, shooting themselves in the foot is the only thing that I can think of because they do not know, know who is behind this door. But it's all that the Lord needs to see. And then as the clock ticks down for a lot to get his family out of Sodom, the patience of God is on full display as no one, no one listens to Lot. And then later, as Lot doesn't even listen to the Lord himself. Did you notice that? That, that, that right after the, 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 the exclamation point of leave, go, as Lot tries to get his family out, what do the angel men say to Lot? Go! Why do you linger? And then in verse 16, what happens? And this is where you've got to put yourself in Lot's shoes. The angel men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Why did he do that? Did you catch it? I didn't read it. It's right there. 
the Lord being merciful to him. See, even when we know God's will for us, we are utterly dependent upon his mercy and his grace to execute his will and his plan for us. And if you are thinking that somehow Lot is not a part of God's people, that he somehow does not believe, remember that Peter himself in 2 Peter 7 calls him righteous. He is a part of the people of God. Lot is a righteous believer. Okay, so what's the point? God's mercy to us means that he not only withholds something from us that we too deserve, but he finds a way for us to escape as well. When we don't, when we can't, or when we are utterly unable to get ourselves out of the mess that we are in. And guess what that begins to point us to? Guess who that begins to point us to in our lives? It is the cross of Jesus, the ultimate way that God shows us mercy, but also creates a way for us to escape the judgment. Sodom is challenging. It is a challenging combination of God's mercy and justice to us. It is both the worst of humanity, as, as, as we just looked at, but it's also the beauty of God's mercy Right there in the middle of it. And it's why the story of Sodom is so important. Because it prepares us for what the cross of Jesus truly is for us. The bringing together of what is the worst of this world with the beauty of God himself. It is the combination of mercy and justice so that you and I not only don't get what we deserve. But somehow we are given a way to escape. And not just to go and escape into the things that we want, to go into to escape into the arms of the Father. And that way is created by God taking the judgment upon himself on that cross for you, for me. The ultimate way God shows us mercy and creates a way for us to escape. This is why we escape the judgment. It is God's mercy. And see, the cross then keeps us from either of these two categories. It keeps us from saying, I can't believe in a God of judgment because what? Jesus got what he didn't deserve. We believe in a God who takes the judgment on himself. But it also keeps us from saying what? They got what they deserved. Because Jesus got what he didn't deserve. The cross breaks us of both of those because that's what mercy does. Like Sodom, we should stand in and we should look at the cross and we should say, why me? That's what it prepares us for. Why did you spare me? That is God's mercy to us. And as it roots in our hearts, it is intended to humble us so as that we might bless the nations as we keep his way. This is the judgment and how it is real. This is how we escape it, and this is why. One point of application, and we're done here. I want to phrase these two how and why as volumes in your ears this morning. And I want to ask you to think about this as you go to lunch after this, is that which volume do you need to turn up this morning, and which one do you need to turn down? And here's what, here's what I mean. Do you need to turn the how we escape volume up? Or do you need to turn the why we escape volume up? If you are walking around with the volume turned up on the how we escape, which is keeping God's way, which is doing righteousness and justice, right? then the chances are you are probably doing a lot of great things. 
both for God and for neighbor. But can you honestly say that living out of the how in this way is causing you to love God more? That's our question for the day. Is it causing you to love God more? Is it causing you to love the things that he loves more? Is it causing you to love righteousness and justice more? Because that side is cranked up. See, some of us need to turn this volume down because the ways of God are not flowing from our love of God. They are flowing from the need to make sure that God what loves us or something else. And for that, we need to turn up the volume of the why. The why we escape. For some of you this morning, that might be you. I need to turn down the how. I need to turn up the why. It's God's mercy that leads us into mission. And also his grace, as we'll see next week. Now, in the same way, some of us need to turn down, though, the volume of the why. And you might be thinking, well, Ryan, are you saying that we are no longer saved by grace alone? Of course not. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, though, is what Calvin has already said is that we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone, right? What I mean by that is that in that way, some of us need to turn down the why so that we can begin to still hear the how. Because what mercy actually does to us is it humbles us and in no way resolves us of keeping God's norms, which are what? To love God and neighbor now. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. And as a matter of fact, as we begin to think about those in volumes of which one I need to turn up and turn down, as we begin to live out of the why, to go do the how, we are emboldened by this, by, by this to do so because we stand in awe of the cross of Jesus and we continue to look at it as we say, why me? Why me? Has mercy humbled you to the point that you can see those around you and hear their cries and long to bring mercy and righteousness and justice into those places just as God has done for you, that he's done for Lot and Sodom, and what he will ultimately do for all of us on Calvary? If not, we need to turn down the volume of the why and begin to turn up the volume of the how. Until what, friends? And this is the vision for the church, till we turn both of those up full blast and enter into life together in this city. Can you imagine this place with both of those volumes cranking? What would that mean for this church? What would that mean for Fort Worth? What would that mean for your neighbor? What would that mean for the ministries that you're a part of here? To have both of those cranked up. Jesus will summarize God's norm, his way for us in the New Testament, by saying love God and love neighbor. Doing righteousness and justice, friends, are still on the table. The only difference is that judgment for failing to keep that way has been satisfied in Jesus. And thank Lord for that. For now, though, for now, maybe the best place for us to be is right where Abraham is when the story ends. He's back up on that hill and he's looking over Sodom as he sees the smoke rise like a furnace. And perhaps the question that comes to him, which should come to us, is why me? May the why we escape judgment send us into mission, into this world with the beauty of the how. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it is heavy and it is weighty and there is a lot going on here. Would you meet us where we are and would you help us to understand this story so that we may better understand your mercy to us? 
and how that changes things for us and how, how we escape judgment, something that we deserve because of your mercy alone. And may that send us into this world to do the things that you are not just requiring, but that you are calling us to, the things that would, would show people who you are more than anything else. Would your spirit be with us as we do that? We ask this in your son's name. Amen.